This is the Read, Write, and Create podcast, the podcast where you get a bite-sized session of creative writing coaching from me, Lori L. Tharps. I'm an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, a journalist, and a former college professor. I've spent more than 20 years writing, teaching, and coaching creative writers, and I created this podcast because I want to help as many BIPOC writers as possible get their stories out of their heads and into the world. So let's go. On today's episode of the podcast, I am delighted to bring another literary luminary on the show to share his advice and experiences maintaining a productive, prolific, and eclectic literary career for more than 30 years. My guest is Jabari Asim, award-winning author, poet, cultural critic, journalist, and professor. Jabari Seem is the Distinguished Professor of Multidisciplinary Letters at Emerson College, where he also directs the MFA program in creative writing. He is the author of 23 books of adult fiction, children's fiction, nonfiction, children's books, and poetry. His most recent novel was Yonder. He's also the author of the books Preaching to the Chickens, the story of young John Lewis, and the essay collection We Can't Breathe. Jabari's awards include a Guggenheim Fellowship and a Pushcart Prize, and his work has been included in Best American Essays and Best American Poetry. The former editor-in-chief of the Crisis Magazine, which is the NAACP's magazine, his journalism work has also appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, The New Republic, American Prospect, Essence, and elsewhere. He's got new books coming out. One is called Wall of Respect, which is a picture book, and American Struggle, Essays on Race, Culture, and Imagination. I told you this man is prolific. Jabari lives in the Boston area, and he has five adult children. Now, you definitely want to stick around and listen to this amazing and inspiring interview. During the conversation, Jabari shares how an encounter with the poet Gwendolyn Brooks was the reason he became a writer. He talks about the practical reasons why he's so prolific. And he has some advice for BIPOC writers who want to be published by the big five publishers. Like I said, this is an interview you don't want to miss. So let's get right to it. Welcome to the Read, Write, and Create podcast, Jabari Asim. Hi there. So before we get started, I like to help people set the scene. Setting is so important in any story. So where are you right now? What city are you in? Tell the people so they can get an idea of where you are. Sure. I am in Brookline, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston, where I work. I am in a room that I facetiously call my summer studio or my summer office. It's actually uh, my son's bedroom when he moved out. I actually have a different room that I use as my writing office, but I was like, hmm, here's another empty space. So I took it over as well. So I tell my wife, I say, I'll be in my summer office. I love that. So Jabari's in his summer office and I'm in my closet (laughs) in the south of Spain. So even though we're an ocean apart, I'm going to just pretend, Jabari, that you and I are sitting together in a library somewhere in front of a roaring fireplace, having this wonderful conversation. So I like to start out asking all of my writers, what was your first writing job? Your first official writing job? Mm, I got to think back. I think this would be mid to late 80s, 1980s, maybe. I worked for um, a Black Weekly newspaper in St. Louis called St. Louis American. And the publisher of it, his day job, he was an oral surgeon, but he wrote the he wrote the editorial page, right? So he would dictate his editorial and send the tape over to the office where we were. And originally, my job was just to transcribe it. But, you know, I couldn't help myself. I began to fix things and sort of, you know, rephrase things, and make things a little more fluent. And eventually... I just started doing more and more of that. And the publisher actually didn't even know who I was. I was an editorial assistant. He didn't know, but he noticed the change in his editorials. And eventually he found me and said, uh, 
you know, young man, from now on, this will be your primary task. You will rewrite this editorial. So it was more of a rewriting job than an actual writing job. But from there, I began to write and eventually became a feature writer at that paper. And just backtracking a little bit, I got the editorial assistant job because I sold that newspaper an article for $35. Uh, It was a profile of a local sculptor. So that's the first piece for which I got paid. 35 wonderful dollars. That's exciting. Did you keep the check? Like, did you frame the check or anything? I wish I had had the foresight to do that, but I so needed that $35. (laughs) I probably ran to the bank with that check. (laughs) So Jabari, did you major in journalism or writing in college or tell us how you actually decided to, you know, I mean, you sent the article into the paper, but was journalism something you were interested in and that was the career you were looking to pursue? It was not. I've had a long and fruitful journalism career. Journalism has been very good to me, but no, it was not on my my wish list. And nonfiction writing of any kind was actually not on my list of aspirations. I kind of stumbled into it when it's worked out really well. But I guess in this day and age, my path is somewhat unusual in that I'm the director of an MFA program and I don't have an MFA. I teach creative writing workshops And I had never attended a creative writing workshop. And before I came to Emerson College, I was a professor of journalism at the University of Illinois. I had never taken a journalism class. So so it's kind of unusual. I was originally a political science major. I had an epiphany, sort of a soul-shifting epiphany, in which I realized I wanted to be a writer. But I actually never finished college either. So I don't even have a BA. All I have is a high school diploma. But I had been practicing rigorously, I guess, in college as soon as I made the commitment to being a writer. And I was, you know, I was arrogant and misguided. So I wasn't particularly concerned about dropping out of school. I thought I could turn pro, as they say, (laughs) like I was an athlete or something. And, you know, it certainly didn't happen that way, but it happened close to that way. Um, And that I was able to get a foothold in the business. I thought I could do it strictly by the quality of my writing. And I was able to do that, but it took a minute. It took a minute. So, What was it actually that you said you had that soul shifting moment? What was that that made you say, yeah, I want to be a writer? It was Gwendolyn Brooks. Gwendolyn Brooks did a three-day residency at my college, uh, the Women's Studies Residential College, of which I was not a member. Um, And I had read some of her work and it had spoken to me. And I had a really strong interest in literature up to that point. But I never considered it, um, I guess, uh, an interest that was practical. So like I said, at that time, I was a political science major. I was pursuing a pre-law track and she came to campus and whatever her first event was, you know, I was transfixed and I just decided that I would cut all my classes. I just would not attend my classes and I would just show up wherever she was. So for three days, I stalked Gwendolyn Brooks. (laughs) So so here she is, you know, in sort of this feminist studies program and she'd look up and there'd be this lone black man, you know, sitting right front row center like, He's obviously not part of this program. What's he doing here? And the final day, you know, I I had been doing some poetry up to that point, you know, really, you know, amateurish stuff and not really showing it, but to close friends. And one of them urged me to give Gwendolyn Brooks a packet of these horrible poems at her farewell reception. And I did. And, you know, about a week later, she wrote me a note. I got a handwritten note in the mail, you know, and it didn't say what I wanted it to say. I wanted it to say, Young man, you are a genius. In all my years in literature, never have I encountered a voice as mature and eloquent and perceptive as yours. It didn't say that, but it says something like, young man, thank you for sharing your work with me. You know, it's very dramatic and intense or something like that. Some kind of kind but noncommittal. And uh, she said, and I do hope you will continue to write or something to that effect. And that's what I needed. That's what I needed. So, you know, I called my mother up long distance. And I told her I was switching majors and that I was going to be a writer. But that was the sort of the catalyst, the visit from Gwendolyn Brooks. What a great story. Did you stay in touch with her? Was there a continuing relationship with her? I wouldn't say we had a continuing relationship, but I will say that a few years after that, I founded a short-lived literary magazine called Eyeball. We published four issues, I think. And I did write to her and ask her to contribute to Eyeball. And she did. So I can say that I'm one of the people who's published Gwendolyn Brooks's work. So that was great. That's incredible. You kind of walked right into my next question. It was going to be about continuing 
education. So you don't have an MFA. I love it that you don't have an MFA, but you lead an MFA program. So the question is, what do you think then has been your greatest education as a writer? Reading. Reading all the time, reading voraciously, reading incessantly. I like to consider myself part of of what I call an outsider intellectual tradition. People who don't have the formal paperwork, people like James Baldwin, Ralph Ellison, August Wilson, all of whom educated themselves uh, primarily by going to the library and living with the books and entering some kind of emotional or intellectual engagement or conversation with all these various voices that they met in the course of reading. And so I did the same thing. When I dropped out of school, I got a job as a shelver in the community services department of the St. Louis Public Library, and I read my way through the shelves. Very intently, I knew that I was going to be a writer. I mean, at that point, I don't know, I was 22 or something. I don't know how old I was, but I had tunnel vision at that point. I was going to do this one thing and I was going to do the thing, you know. And so the other part of it, I would say, in addition to reading, is observing and listening to the extent that one can, because I was already sensitive to writing that was really self absorbed. That's just me, 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 and I'm alone in the universe and nothing else has happened. I've never really been attracted as a reader to that kind of writing. And I didn't want to do that kind of writing. And I knew the best way to guard against that was to observe other people and listen to them and, and pay attention to the events and the turning of the planet, et cetera. So uh, that would be the second thing. The third thing would be practice, 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 practice all the time. So in the beginning, I had, you know, I, I knew I wanted to write fiction. I knew I wanted to write poetry. Those were like my focuses. But I wanted to be able to prove that I could do any kind of writing. So my wife got me this, uh, what do you call it, an accordion file with handles. It was like a suitcase. And uh, I just practiced different kinds of writing. I wrote sample op-ed pieces. I wrote profiles of people that would never be published. I wrote poems. I wrote plays. So I had all of these different categories of writing in which I had samples. In the event, I had an opportunity and someone said, well, what do you write? We're looking for a writer. What can you do this? I even wrote press releases. I had a file of just fake press releases that I had written because I wanted to be able to say, sure, I can do that. I can do that job. So that's sort of how it began. So I would say read, observe, listen, practice. I love that. That is phenomenal. And you've just made me even think about my own origin story where I say I became a writer when I was eight because my mother bought me an antique Remington typewriter and I wrote plays. I wrote speeches. I wrote, this is terrible. I don't want to make light of it, but like I would write really tragic stories where like, of course, the teenager dies and the mother is the child is orphaned. I wrote restaurant menus like I wrote everything. And you just made me realize that I stopped doing that. I did that as a child. And you're saying you did that to train yourself to be the writer that you are today, which is, you know, you are one of the most multi-talented writers that I know who really has written it all. And hearing that origin story for you, how you kind of trained yourself to be ready in any genre, it makes so much sense. And I hope people really hear that because I know that Oftentimes in writing programs, particularly, students are told to, you know, stick to one genre. If you go into an MFA program, even some undergraduate writing programs, you have to choose fiction or nonfiction. And so I actually found a quote of yours from Mosaic Magazine. And you said, even if your workshop or MFA program discourages working in multiple genres, it would be prudent to do it anyway, even if you have to do it on the side. So I mean, you just said how you did that for yourself, but what do you mean? And how does that help the developing writer? Even if, let's say, they know they want to do fiction, are you still saying they should be working in these other mediums? They should try poetry. They should try nonfiction. Can you talk a little bit about why you think that it's smart to work in multiple genres? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the idea is to communicate. And, you know, what I stress to my students is I always envision the world of writing as a conversation, a conversation that began long before I ever entered it, first of all. So the focus for me is not on uncovering new material or new information necessarily or a new experience, but whatever it is I'm trying to convey, that I convey it in a uniquely compelling way, that I do it in a different way. And I think that familiarizing oneself with other ways of expression is a way of adding tools to your toolkit. For example, poets frequently are justifying every word in a line. 
right? And getting rid of anything that doesn't serve the purpose of the line. And that attention to economy, to precision, to clarity often, that's very useful in other forms of writing as well. So you can kind of take it that way and apply it to other things. And, you know, in in course of reading interviews that I've found interesting, I'm aware of a few writers who are not poets themselves, but begin each day, each writing day by reading poetry because the eloquence and grace and precision of poetry is sort of a way of opening the door to that aspect of the creative imagination that can help you do your own work. So I think that looking at other genres and even practicing them can be really useful and really helpful in helping you to sort of uh, shape your own approach to whatever it is you want to do. I think also it kind of frees you You know, if you know you want to be a novelist, sometimes practicing poetry or practicing creative nonfiction, you feel less pressure about it because you're not doing it because you want to be published. You're doing it as practice, and that can feel good. All right. So you did get your start in journalism. That's how you started. And I know you had a very illustrious career at The Washington Post, also editing The Crisis Magazine. So can you tell us what your first published book was and a little bit about the journey to writing the book and getting it published? Sure. My first published book was a a novel for middle schoolers called The Road to Freedom. It's now out of print and we're working to get it uh, back in print. And that came out, I want to say, in 1999 or 2000, uh, but it was a while ago. Um, What happened there was I was working as an editor at The Washington Post, as you mentioned, And I had a good friend named Fred McKissick Jr. And he had a two book contract with the publisher where he was writing two middle school novels based on historical periods. And I think he had uh, the Reconstruction and maybe the Civil Rights Movement. And these were part of a longer historical series that this publisher was doing. And he wrote the first book and decided he didn't want to write the second book, which was on (laughs) Reconstruction. So he was trying to get out of his contract. And when he was talking to the publisher, the publisher basically said, well, yeah, we could we could let you out of this contract if you find someone else who can write this book. And so he called me and said, hey, you've been wanting to write a book. You haven't written a book yet. What do you think? <laughs> and I said, uh, hell yeah. So You I said, I'm of, ready. Let me get my accordion file. I, there you go. I'm ready. There you go. Yeah. So that was the first book. I had a conversation with the editor and the publisher. I wrote a sample chapter, an outline of you know how I would cover the period. And they sent me a contract. I didn't have an agent. It was a decent deal. I knew. So I was happy to write the book. And that was my introduction to the experience of being a, a published author, book author. Jabari, you're making this really hard because these your stories are so not what anybody else is going to experience. Oh, my friend didn't want to write his book. So I wrote it for him. I got him into the publishing game. Um So let's jump to your second book. How does one follow up? You don't have an agent, but you've got a book published. It's middle grade. So did it whet your appetite? Did it prove that you could do it? Like what came next? And how did you then get an agent? And, you know, in certain ways, you're going backwards to go forward. So what was next for you then in terms of your book career? I had never expressed a desire to write for newspapers, for example. I had always expressed a desire to write books. That's really what I wanted to do. So I always kind of looked at, even when I was having this wonderful journalism career and uh, writing and editing for the Washington Post, the whole time I had my eye on the book game. That's totally what I wanted to do, even then, uh, and would have totally dropped that life in exchange for the life of an author. And I was also at that period, Lori, where friends and professional acquaintances were beginning to get book deals. It seems like everyone I knew had a book deal, except me. And people were coming to me asking me advice. Can you look at my manuscript? Can you look at my proposal? And I was like, why isn't this funny? (laughs) A man who hasn't posted any books yet. So what happened, I was working at the Washington Post and uh, it was after Amadou Diallo had been murdered by the police in New York and the policemen were on trial and they got acquitted. And a good friend of mine, uh, Kevin Powell, called me. I was at work. He was just totally upset. And I was just very, I don't know, nonchalant. I was like, well, what did you expect? Let's not get upset about this. There's no way, you know, those guys weren't going to be acquitted. So uh, I hung up with him. And and then uh, a few minutes later, my wife called. Very upset. You know, the cops were acquitted. Blah, 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 blah. You know, she's just really mad about it. And I said, uh, you know, babe, uh, you know, chill out. I'm at work. What'd you expect? Calm down. You know, some mildly uh, patronizing uh, conversation I gave her, trying to get her off the phone. So I got her off the phone. Then she called me back. She was even more upset. You know, she said, I'm watching the news and 
And here's the key sentence. She said, and I'm watching it with your sons. And she was very upset. And uh, she said, you need to do something, you know, which is like the sentence you never want to hear from your wife. (laughs) And I said, you know, come on, babe, give me a break. You know, what can I do? (laughs) Right. And so I I hung up and then I sat there, man. I just sat at my desk and stewed a little bit. And I thought, you know, duh, I'm a writer. (laughs) I know what I could do. I could do the one thing I can do. I can write a book. So I conceived of this idea. I wanted to do a book of essays of 12 black men commenting on the idea of crime and punishment, law, justice, et cetera. And I envisioned what I considered my ideal jury. And I said in the proposal, you know, I'd like to think that if I committed a crime and I was guilty for it, that I would be convicted for it. But I would be much more comfortable if I could look at that jury box and see some reflection of myself in it and maybe reassure myself that I'd had a fair trial. And also in the event that I was innocent, that I was not guilty, that this jury would discover that and affirm that that fact. So I began to put together a proposal around that idea. And I hadn't done that kind of proposal before. Um, so I called another friend, Rohan Preston, who had edited a book called Soul Fires, Young Black Men on Love and Violence. And so I told him, I said, I got this idea. I want to kind of do this book. And uh, he said, that's a great idea. I said, well, you know, I'm not sure about the proposal. He said, well, I'll give you a template. I will send you the proposal that I did for Soul Fires. Just cross out Soul Fires and put the working title of you and do it that way, right? And eventually, changing the copy, it will become your proposal. And so that was very generous. And that's what I did. So I got the idea to call this book Not Guilty, 12 Black Men on uh, Law, Justice, and Life. And I wrote the proposal and I wrote the sample chapter, my own essay that would be in the book, which Rohan had advised me to do. Then I made a list of uh, agents based on friends or colleagues who had agents who would be comfortable letting me use their name to pitch the agents. And so the first agent on the list gave me a really quick no. I like sent him the idea on like a Friday. He wrote back the same day and said, nah, sounds like a magazine article at best. So then uh, I contacted the second agent. I think I waited till Monday and I called the second agent. And, you know, I dropped the appropriate name so that she would take my call. I told her the idea and she said, oh, I think that's a brilliant idea. And she said, if you can have the proposal on my desk by this date, I can sell this. And so I did. I got the, I went home, told my wife, I said, I got to drop everything. I got to do this right now. And I did. And true to her word, she sold it pretty quickly at auction. You know, it's just a wonderful experience. And that book became Not Guilty, which I think came out in 2001. Wow. What a powerful story. Thanks, Jabari's wife. You got to do something. (laughs) Well, you'll note note that that and all my books for adults are dedicated to her. I was going to say, I hope so. I hope she gets one. Oh, yeah. It's for you. Thanks to you, right? All the time. All the time. Awesome. Awesome. So I think a lot of people probably know you for your hard-hitting nonfiction books that do really critique American culture, that deal with race, that deal with race, culture, identity. But you also write literally the most adorable children's books. Whose Knees Are These? It's like one of my favorite books. So for those who don't know, if you want to pause and go Google Whose Knees Are These, you will see that Jabari also writes just lovely board books that are rhyming, that are beautiful. Most of them are illustrated with Black characters. Tell me, how does one go from hard-hitting nonfiction to whose knees are these? How how does your brain work to make that happen? (laughs) I've often asked myself how my brain works. I don't have the answer. Yeah, then whose knees are these and whose toes are those are actually my best-selling books. And it's really funny because it doesn't happen every week, but it happens fairly often. I'll get a note via Instagram or, or, you know, some way on the internet. And someone will say, yeah, I've been reading you for, you know, 10 years. I had no idea that the Jabari Asim who wrote the children's books is the same Jabari Asim who writes the books on race. I'm like, yeah, same guy. <laughs> but um, my wife and I, our children are all grown now, but we have five children. We have four sons and one daughter. And the books kind of emerged from common interests that I had with my wife and a common purpose in raising these children. So at one point, many years ago, my wife was a children's librarian and she was also a storyteller. She did a local television show. We lived in St. Louis at the time and it was called Mama Goose. And she dressed up like an old lady and they would bring in a live studio audience of school children. And she would tell them 
uh, retell traditional tales from all over the world. So our house was kind of, we had a lot of that material on hand. And then when I became an editor at the Washington Post, one of the things that I was in charge of was coverage of children's books. So we had so many children. My, my children got so many complimentary books and they read all the time. And then those first board books came from little nonsense sing-songy rhymes that I made up to entertain them and primarily to like trick them into doing tasks, like putting on their pajamas or taking a bath or going to bed or cleaning up after themselves, you know, really silly stuff. And I think Whose Toes Are Those was one of those. And it was my wife again, who <laughs> you may notice a pattern here, who the smarter half of this couple is. She said, you know, that's a children's book. Just just go write that down. <laughs> and uh, so I wrote Whose Toes Are Those and I wrote Whose Knees Are These at the same time. And my agent, because, you know, the agent that had sold Not Guilty, she sent him around a few places and the publishing industry is sort of like it is now. It was pretty white. It was mostly straight, white, self-identifying female editors, right? And so they all turned them down. And then we sent them to Little Brown. And Little Brown, they landed on the desk of three women of color. Uh, it was Connie Shu, Alvina Ling, and Jennifer Hunt. So it was two Asian-American women and one African-American woman. And they loved them. And they envisioned them as board books with little children of color. So they bought them. And it was, it was those three women who ushered those books into publication, oversaw uh, the introduction of them to the marketplace, and really kick-started my career as a children's book author. And so my experience, I think, really speaks to the need for diversity in the rooms at publishing houses where people make decisions, people of color in decision-making positions. These three women could say, not only do we like this, but we want to see it on the shelves and we have ideas about how to get them there and how to get them into the hands of the readers who are actually quite hungry for them. So that's how that happened. That's a great story. And we'll put a pin in that, but I do want to come back to that idea about the diversity or lack thereof in the publishing industry. But just from a, like a career perspective, do you set time aside in your, maybe your annual schedule, or do you break up your writing time where you're like, now I'm going to focus on children's books, and now I'm going to work on fiction, and now I'm going to work on nonfiction? Or do you wait for an idea to come to you, and whatever format that idea belongs in, you're like, all right, I'm writing another novel, or nope, this is definitely something for children. Nope, this is this, this is that. How do you kind of bifurcate your life to be able to produce in these different genres so prolifically. It's not like a one-off, you know, it's like you just did one children's book. Usually the idea presents itself in the form it's going to take. If I get an idea for a children's book, it usually appears as an idea for a children's book, as opposed to an idea where I go, should this be a poem? Should this be a novel? You know, what should this be? When I first get the idea, I already have a sense of what it's supposed to be. And then I never work on just one project, which is, again, an idea I've modified uh, from Gwendolyn Brooks from that very first talk that I saw her give. She said she worked on poems in what she called modalities. So let's say you're going to write a poem about Emmett Till. She would say one poem is going to be from the point of view of Emmett Till. Another one's going to be from the point of view of the cousin who was sharing a bed with him when, the, when they came and got him. Another one's going to be from his, uh, the point of view of his mother in Chicago. Uh, another one's going to be from the point of view of the river where his body was found. And she said, think of each of these as drafts, and maybe only one of these is going to be a finished poem that anyone ever sees. But she said she would just kind of look at each of them and tinker with them and work on the drafts that way with the idea that it would be great if a single complete poem emerged from this. And it also discouraged her from trying to cram all her ideas into a single poem. You know, trying to make one poem do too much work. So I kind of adapted that. So I'm working on a nonfiction project and a fiction project and a poem and a children's book all at the same time. That's typically how I work, right? So I might say, if it's a non-teaching day, I might say, okay, the first hour of the day is going to be on this novel. And I actually set the timer. And when that hour's up, I go, okay, what's next? You know, oh, I have a nonfiction book under contract probably should be working on that. So I'll devote, you know, the next hour to that and so on and so forth until I run out of energy and I have far less energy than I once had. So I'm trying to be smart about, okay, that's enough for today. 
And that actually is a perfect segue to this next question I had, which is about your productivity. If I'm not mistaken, you have 23 publications to your name, and I know you have two more books like in the pipeline. Yes. So, so you just described a really interesting way of working, multiple projects in multiple genres at the same time. It sounds like you said you break up your day so that you should be working on each one of them a little bit. But like, do you attribute your productivity? And you said your first book came out in like 2000 or yeah. 1999. Yeah. But yes. more or less, you've been publishing for 23, 24. So basically like a book a year, if not multiple Most, books a yeah. year. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that's an incredible output. What do you attribute that productivity to? Is it literally because you're so organized? And mind you, everybody listening, remember that Jabari is also the head of the department. And I know he has other jobs. I'm not even going to mention all the other extras that he does, but he he's not a man of leisure. So what do you attribute the productivity to? Do you have a like a rock solid work ethic? Do you not sleep? Do you not eat like normal people? What do you yeah. think it is that allows you to maintain this level of productivity? That's a good question. Originally, it was just practical concerns. Because we had so many children, young children, this is when we moved to the Washington, D.C. area, we realized that whatever salary my wife would earn would be eaten up by daycare expenses. So we talked about her staying at home. And at some point, we actually segued for three years into homeschooling the children, which she completely oversaw. So one of the things we talked about, well, is if I'm the sole income provider for this very large family, how am I going to do it? And so I said, well, I got a really good day job at the Washington Post. I will not turn down any freelance assignments that come to me. And I will try to always have a book contract, at least one book under contract. This is a practical concern to keep the, the roof over our heads. And also, let me let's be frank. I love to do it. It's what I love to do. I mean, you know, my wife, my children, my work, that's about it for me. And I don't have any hobbies. I have no hobbies. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't play cards. I don't watch sports. This is it, right? I love to do it. Uh, And I'm just really grateful to be able to do it. So that's kind of how I do the work. I don't sleep a lot. That's true. I don't consider myself particularly well organized. I have what I call a a scattershot imagination. So the way that I work actually kind of suits that because I don't have a great attention span. So before I bore myself... I move on to the next thing, which keeps me interested. It kind of helps my brain, kind of helps me focus. And so I think all those things contribute. And then finally, I would say that um, after I worked at the Black uh, Weekly newspaper for two years, I was laid off. It was a very small budget. It was a wonderful place to work, but they had no money. But it was great. It was great. But anyway, I tried for two years to get another writing job after that. Occasionally, I got a freelance assignment, you know, for like $40.00. But I couldn't get a full-time job. And those are the two longest years of my life. And, you know, I used to pray to be busy. And I said, if I'm ever in a place where I have almost more work than I could handle, I'm not turning down anything. And I will never complain about being busy. Because God, what 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 I wouldn't give to be busy right now, right? So and the other thing was that during that period, though, I continued to practice every day. I wrote every day with no no hope or prospect of where this work would land. And then when I did have opportunities, I had work that I could show. I did say during this period, I've been doing this and this, and here are some examples. And it was also during that period that my first poem was accepted for publication in Black American Literature Forum, which is now called African American Review. It's at St. Louis University. Now it was at Indiana State University at the time. And uh, it was around that same time that uh, my first short story was published, too. So, you know, so there were glimpses of light, glimpses of hope, glimpses of confirmation that, yeah, I'm actually doing the right thing and I should keep doing this. Again, you're precipitating all of my questions so perfectly, but I was going to ask you what you do when the writing gets hard or when you face rejection. You just mentioned, you know, a time when you were actually out of work, you just kept writing. Is that a similar idea of what you do when... You know, maybe a book idea is rejected or maybe you feel like you have writer's block. What's your kind of mental mindset that keeps you in the game even when things are hard or, you know, you face rejection for your work? Yeah, I think staying in the work is a healing process for me. So I'm never in a position where I have to dwell on a failure because, well, I got this other thing I need to do, right? I usually carry a little 
tiny notebook in my back pocket. Uh, but I'm always writing things down. I've kind of done that my whole career. And I, I look at the ideas every day. You know, I'll call them up and say, what am I thinking about? What did I encounter today? And I just think that really helps me so that I'm, I'm not looking backwards, right? But as a human being, I'm naturally drawn to looking backwards and saying, why didn't that work? Why did no one like that? You know, so I do that too, but I just try not to dwell on it. I try to keep moving. How do you contextualize or how does your Black identity impact the work that you put out in the world? Can you talk about how your Blackness impacts your writing and your purpose as a writer? Sure. Yeah. I I mean, I, I think they're inseparable, but I would say that I made a commitment to directing whatever limited skills I happen to have in the service of Black liberation even before I committed to writing. So when I was a political science major, in my mind, I envisioned I would be a civil rights attorney, that I would be fighting in that way. And, you know, certain books like A Choice of Weapons by Gordon Parks, for example, instructed me that, you know, you could use your gifts in the service of Black liberation, whatever those gifts might be. And we, most of us have some particular skill that if we looked at it in that way, we could be of service. And uh, with him, it was, you know, his camera. And so I thought, well, you know, this is something that it appears that I have potential to do. And of course, you know, I I discussed that usually in a Black context. So I grew up in inner city, St. Louis, you know, my parents were Black, grandparents, you know, it was was a really Black community. And it was, I don't know if we like consciously thought about Blackness as opposed to lived in it. It's like my son says when he gets that question, he says, it's like asking a fish how it feels about the ocean. You know, it's like, this is my universe. And then at particular points in my life, I've always been really fortunate, and I'm aware of this, that African-American elders kind of took me under their wing and said, young man, I have some things to share with you. And that also influenced me a lot. And I get myself a little bit of credit there in that I was always sufficiently humble and respectful to recognize the magnificence and the importance of African-American elders. So I had two professors in college who sat me down, went over my work, told me where it was lacking, told me what I needed to do, told me who I needed to read. And if they didn't like something, I didn't go, oh, you know, it's just too deep for you to get. You know, I went, oh, let me take that back and have another stab at it. And so I do think that separated me from a, a few of the other young people with whom I associated who had similar aspirations. You know, I wasn't defensive. I was like, tell me what I need to know. Make me look good, right? (laughs) And I was really open to that. And so I had really impactful instruction. I had a professor uh, named Gail Pemberton who wrote a collection of essays called The Hottest Water in Chicago, which is a brilliant book. She was very influential on me. And the novelist Leon Forrest, who was also at my, he's the guy who really like told me, yeah, you might think this is writing, uh, but, you know, actually it isn't. (laughs) Ouch. (laughs) He was very kind about it. Very kind about it. But he was like, you're not there yet, young man. (laughs) And and it was a turning point to hear that from him. Because up to that point, you know, I'd gone to like campus open mics, you know, show my poems. It was always, it's fortunate. There was always some young ladies around. Oh, Jabari, you're so talented, right? So I thought, man, I'm really talented. I'm I'm the next Langston Hughes, you know? And it, You know, he came at it from a different way, like, "Mm, uh, actually, you're not. (laughs) There's considerable distance between you and Langston Hughes. (laughs) And I needed to hear that, right? So, Right. We need to hear that. All right. Such great stories. I have one last question before we jump into our literary lightning round, and that is this. I said before that we were going to come back to this topic, and that is the state of the publishing industry today. According to my most recent research, 2021 is the last calendar year where I can find statistics about the diversity or lack thereof from the big five publishers. And it was something like 75% of the books published by the big five publishers were written by white authors. So that means only 25% were published by people of color. So that's a combined Black, Latino, Asian American, multiracial, indigenous, Pacific Islanders, you know, mush them all together and you get that 24.9%. 
So that still seems pretty bleak for a writer of color to imagine that they could get their work published. But then I look at you and it seems like, you know, you have multiple books in multiple genres. And again, everybody I know, because <laughs> I associate with writers of color, you know, they're having their book deals and, you know, it's great things are happening. So I just wonder if you could comment, thinking of the people listening, our audience of writers, what do you say to a writer of color who, you know, wants to get their books traditionally published? Like, how do you tell them to think about the publishing landscape? Because I know a lot of people are like, oh, I'm never going to get my book published because the publishing industry is racist. It's all white people. It's never going to happen. And while, again, the facts are facts, I would like to hear your thoughts about the industry and how do BIPOC writers approach the idea of getting a book deal and having a career even especially if they are writing about characters of color, you know, if their stories are not, you know, featuring white people. Yeah. There are a handful of editors of color and I would know who they are. Number one, there are a handful of agents of color. I would know who they are. And then I would do my homework and know who the editors and agents are who are not of color, but consistently represent and published writers of color. I would devote a, a decent amount of intellectual energy to doing that work, almost as much as the energy that I devote to creating that work, is to find out who these people are. So Not Guilty, for example, when it was published, it was published by Charles Harris, who was the founder of Amistad Press, which was later bought by HarperCollins, was independent Black press. At the time, he was one of three Black male editors that I could name in the publishing industry. And uh, even before I ever pitched him a book, I envisioned pitching him a book. I said, okay, those three guys are on my list. And if they decline my proposals, I will actually take their comments really seriously because they're coming from an informed position. And I would assume that they would be frank with me and say, look, brother to brother, you know, this is what I'm up against, right? And so that's part of the work. And then I'm not a huge advocate of writers approaching publishers unagented. It's too easy for them to dismiss you and to say that your work hasn't been vetted. So I would put a lot of energy into getting representation, a lot of energy. This is not a writer of color, but I read a profile yesterday of the novelist Anne Napolitano, and it mentioned in there that she had pitched and been rejected by 80 agents before she found her agent. Wow. Yeah. She's the author who Oprah was like, hey, I love your book. Yes, so sometimes people will say to me, you know, I've been rejected by five agents. I, I don't know what I'm going to. Yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> right. But also do the homework. I mean, I, I would start with agents who have uh, ushered books by authors of color all the way to the shelves. And then, of course, you know, once you get to that stage, the other thing you have to be aware of is if you get the New York Times uh, book review on Sunday and you open it up and there's that double truck ad that introduces some author, it's almost never an author of color. So Simon & Schuster, Doubleday, all these places might acquire your book and they might give you some support, but they're never going to give you a commensurate degree of support. And you have to push for that. And your agent has to push for that. And it's unfortunate, but you do have to do some of that work for them because they don't know. They don't know that there's a small black independent bookstore in this town that's run by two women and they, they're really supportive of black books. And if you just get the galleys in their hands, they would support this book, right? They don't always know that. And instead of being resentful that they don't know that, you actually have to tell them. And there's also the network of black authors, right? I'll see you or someone else post on social media. I had a wonderful reading at this bookstore. I make a note of that bookstore. And I'll say, hmm, hey, Lori Tharps, they might be open to having me, right? I don't have to explain myself to them. They'll get it. And so there's a lot of that work, too. Uh, when uh, my book, The N-Word, came out, I did the book tour that the publisher put together. And it was extensive. It was like 10 or 12 cities or something like that. But then I toured pretty consistently for the next three years after that. College campuses, mostly. Libraries. My wife did all that work, not the publicist. Your wife, I want her on the podcast next time. She's the, the, the strategist I see on this amazing literary career. She's much more interesting. It's true. <laughs> All right, Jabari, this has been so wonderful. But like I said, I can't let you go without doing my literary lightning round. So I'm going to just ask you a few questions that I don't want you to think too deeply about it. I just want you to answer, you know, whatever comes to your mind. These are kind of 
last minute things to help our audience with their literary life. All right. Question number one. What is a secret weapon that you have in your writer's toolbox that you can share with the Read, Write, and Create audience? A secret weapon. My God. Or a secret tool. Jeez. I would say green pens. Green pens. Yeah. What do you use them for? What makes them your secret weapon? Everything. I, you know, if I'm writing, see, like, I, well, your audience won't be able to see it, but I have my blank page book in front of me right now. When I start to jot down an idea, if I see that my pen isn't green, which is rare, I stop and I get a green pen. Mm. And I think I did read something that, that you write with your green pens because Langston Hughes wrote with green pens. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. yeah, I'm claiming him as a spiritual ancestor. You know, what What would Langston do? Uh, he'd get out that green pen. So let me do that. I love it. You know, <laughs> Langston Hughes was a war correspondent in the Spanish Civil War. And is my goal to track all of his previous locations and lead a Langston Hughes tour of Spain. That's on my to-do list for this year. That would be amazing. Would you come for the tour if I did that? I would. Bring your green pen? Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) All right. Question number two. What is your best source for coming up with new book ideas? Oh, man. I've already answered that. My wife. (laughs) 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 Okay. Question number three. When you write, do you have music on or music off? Most of the time on. I would say 90% of the time on. Excellent. What kind of music do you have on? I create a playlist for each project. So like for Yonder, my most recent novel, I have a Yonder playlist. And it's mostly variations of spirituals and early African-American music. Uh, I recently wrote a book called A Child's Introduction to Jazz. And every artist that's in the book was on my playlist. So I was listening to them while writing about them. I love that. I love that. Uh, question number four. When you're writing, do you have a favorite beverage or a snack that you consume while you're writing? Or can you not eat or drink while you're writing? Uh, yeah, I can do both. <laughs> Make no mistake. I would say uh, ocean spray white cranberry juice. Mm, it's much healthier. I was expecting like black coffee or, you know, something. <laughs> okay. Ocean spray cranberry juice. Maybe they will sponsor this podcast episode. Anyway. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> number five, what is the best time of day for you to write? Morning, early morning, earlier the better. Last and final question. Is there a quote, a Bible verse, or a saying that you use that keeps you motivated or inspired? to write or to keep writing? Sure. I have about 10,000 of those. I have them in a file called Commonplace Book, and I look at it every day before I write. So I'll just uh, share one today. An artist is here to disturb the peace. Uh, James Baldwin. That's amazing. I love it. All right, Jabari, thank you so much for being here today. Before I let you go, can you please tell people where they can find you on the internet streets if they want to read more about you, if they want to you know, see more of the books that you've written, anywhere that you like to be online? I have a public Facebook page that's called uh, Jabari Asim Writer. I'm on Instagram at Jabari Asim, and my website is jabariasim.org. This has been one of the most exciting and fun interviews that I've done. I appreciate your time and I appreciate all of the wisdom you have shared today. Thank you so much. Oh my goodness, I forgot to ask what I always ask. What's the next book we're going to hear about from you? Oh, that's a good question. I think the next one to come out is called uh, Wall of Respect uh, by Penguin Random House. It's a picture book about African-American murals in the inner city. Oh my God. I would not have expected that. But of course, this is you, Jabari. You come up with the most amazing ideas. So, all right, look for that book number 24. Maybe it'll be 25. And if you haven't read Yonder, do yourself a favor and pick that one up and read that as well. That is a novel that came out early 2022. An absolutely amazing book. That was an amazing conversation and interview. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Here are some takeaways to remember from Jabari. Number one, the best way to improve your craft as a writer is to read widely, observe the world around you, and write a lot. Number two, practicing writing in different genres is an excellent way to become a more versatile and fluid writer. Number three, you can use your writing gifts as a tool for liberation. And number four, if you want to write as many books as Jabari Asim, 
don't have any hobbies. <laughs> and of course, fall in love with the work. I hope this conversation has left you inspired and more motivated to write. I hope you feel a deeper connection and commitment to your own literary projects and practice. Now, here are some updates about what's coming up for the Read, Write, and Create community. It's official. You can now sign up for my writing classes. In April, I will be teaching a creative writing workshop specifically for BIPOC writers who are looking to develop a creative writing habit, improve their creative writing skills, and share their work in a safe and supportive writing workshop. Now, you don't have to be a published writer or trying to write a book to be in this class. It's really for those people who want to engage in the act of writing and develop their skills in a BIPOC-centered workshop. The class will meet online from April 15th through June 10th. Class size is limited, so definitely sign up if you're interested as soon as possible. I will leave a link in the show notes for where you can sign up for this class. I am also hosting a one-day intensive workshop on Sunday, May 7th on how to write a nonfiction book proposal. This class is open to any and all writers working on a nonfiction book, including memoir. So if you want to sell a nonfiction book to a mainstream publisher, you have to write a proposal first. You also need that proposal to get an agent, and the proposal will be what is used to actually get a book deal. So if you're ready to start pitching agents with your nonfiction book, you should definitely register for this one-day workshop. Space is definitely limited on this one, so sign up as soon as possible. And yes, I will put the link for signing up to this in the show notes. If you haven't already, you should definitely sign up for the Read, Write, and Create newsletter. That way you'll be the first to know about all of the upcoming workshops and classes and other writing opportunities that I share, including writing contests and call for work from presses all over the world. I will also leave a link to sign up for the newsletter in the show notes as well, but you can also find the link to sign up for the newsletter on the Read, Write, and Create website. The Read, Write, and Create podcast is produced by me, Lori L. Tharps. Our editor is Brad Linder, and our theme music is by Wattaboy. Be sure you are subscribed to the Read, Write, and Create podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. That way, you will not miss a single inspiring episode of the show. Now, if you are looking for more creative writing inspiration, writing prompts, and useful resources for your literary life, be sure to check out all of the amazing content on the Read, Write, and Create website at readwriteandcreate.com. As a matter of fact, I recently posted a list of BIPOC book festivals all over the world that you might want to check out. Again, that's on the Read, Write, and Create blog. Now, that's all I have to say about the blog. That's all I have to say about the podcast. Basically, I'm saying that there's a lot of resources and information and inspiration here at Read, Write, and Create. If you can think of one other BIPOC writer who might want some of this information and inspiration, please tell them about it. Tell them about me. Tell them about the platform. I really would appreciate it. And I do want as many BIPOC writers to know about this resource, to know about what I'm doing here. So I can use all the help I can get spreading the word. Thank you so very much. I'll be back here in two weeks on Monday. Until then, keep writing. Keep writing.